Merry Christmas, everybody. Go ahead and have a seat. If you have a Bible, you can open up to John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We're going to have the scriptures up on the screen. Fun to be with you guys on Christmas morning. It's, it's pretty neat, you know. It's interesting to be 30 this year and to think of 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul says, you know, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And just for me to be growing up, kind of, you know, <laughs> I mean, whatever, you know, but just to have the Lord be working in me, just, just more of a maturity and understanding, you know, just what Christmas really is. And I, I really can't think of anything more awesome to do on Christmas morning than to be with you guys and just worship and go through the word and just be with you guys. So Merry Christmas. Uh, if you don't have um, plans for today or if you're alone, um, we just want to invite you to hang around at the church all afternoon if you want. Uh, there's going to be potluck and lots of food and games and all of those sorts of things. And Madison Gish has labored quite hard to, to make it happen. Uh, so you don't have to, but it's just available if you, if you need a place to go uh, today. The church will be open. So uh, John chapter 1 is where we're at. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 16. And as we look at this uh, chapter, uh, the, the topic of today is the incarnation and celebrating the incarnation or the word becoming flesh. Now, for a lot of us, we have not much of an understanding of the incarnation. Maybe that's a new word to you today and you hear incarnation and you think of a flower that you might pin to your chest on Mother's Day or Carnation instant breakfast, you know, you're going to love it in an instant, you know. Uh, maybe you are a fan of Nacho Libre, you know, and you know that his girlfriend in the movie is a nun named Incarnacion, you know, and he writes a song for her, and it's just a beautiful limerick, you know. Um, no, these hymns that we sang today are so much more beautiful, if you know what I'm talking about. But there's a lot of mysteries in the Christian faith. Uh, you know, you, you look at the Trinity and it boggles our mind, does it not? Uh, you look at the atonement and how the blood of one man can cover the sins of the entire world. Or you look at the resurrection and what a mystery that is and, and how fun it is to dive in and do a study on the resurrection. Uh, but something that probably trumps all of those things in mystery is the incarnation. Uh, how God could take on flesh and yet be fully man and fully God. As Martin Luther said, the mystery of the humanity of Christ, that he sunk himself into our flesh, is beyond all human understanding. As we look at John today, chapter 1, we see verses 1 through 5, that Jesus was pre-existent before the world. He's the pre-existent word. In verses 6 through 13, we see that he is the coming light. And in verses 14 through 18, you see that he is the incarnate son. Now, as you have probably been reading different Christmas stories in the season, 
maybe you've gone down to the reading time at the public library and, you know, they've got their stack of books that they read to the children, everything from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer to a story of a snowman who melted and the belief of a whole bunch of kids somehow brought him back together again or, you know, uh, Santa Claus, you know, or whatever, all sorts of different things. Uh, the world would tell you that the, the moral of all of these stories or the message of all of these stories is uh, us coming from darkness into light. Uh, but you, you got to know today that the real Christmas story is much more beautiful than that and that it is about the light coming into the darkness. It's about the light coming into the darkness. Now, we're not talking about an ordinary human being being clothed in divinity, but rather divinity stepping into humanity. And that is huge. That is deep. And we ask ourselves, why? Why would God go to such great lengths for me and for you? And as we figure out why today, it causes us to celebrate and to jump with joy. Now, first of all, why does it matter? Right? You know, we've, we've been plugged at Christmas time since our youth of the images of the manger and, you know, all sorts of different people of different ranks standing around the crib and the cradle or the, the trough, really. Uh, donkeys and lambs and cows and kittens all inside this barn. And, and, you know, our sentimentalizing of it kind of destroys some of the true worth of the story. But really, why does it matter? How is this relevant to me at all? I mean, you know, I'm a welder, you know, or I'm a carpenter. I make cabinets, you know, or, you know, I work at the school district, you know, or I'm a plumber, whatever. You know, what the, in the world does this have to do with me? And why do I care, really, about the Christmas story? Well, it's relevant to you because in the Christmas story is good news. Good, good news. Who doesn't love Good news. Who doesn't love, uh, you know, the little boy selling newspapers out on the corner with something great to yell about? You know, the end of a war or the leaving of Iraq, you know, or something like that where, oh man, it's been a long time coming. This is good, good news. And not only is it good news and something that we all need to hear and hope to hear, but also the Christmas story addresses the human dilemma, the, the questions of where do we come from? You know, uh, what are we and where are we going? Questions that every single human has had in their heart uh, can be answered through the understanding of the incarnation of Christ. Now let's look at verse 1 of John chapter 1, where it says, In the beginning was the word. You know, pause there. This phrase, in the beginning, it's, it's in the Greek, NRK, or uh, before even time began, was the word. Now, in your imagination, go back to the beginning of time, go back to, you know, everything your biology class taught you, you know, go back to, you know, if you have some physics degree or physicist background, go back to just as far as you can, and then go beyond that. And there's the Son of God. He was before all of those things. He goes beyond even our, our deepest imagination of beginning. As Athanasius says, there never was when he was not. He's always been. And we're talking Jesus here. 
He's always been. A lot of times we think that uh, the Christmas day was the day that Jesus began, was the day that the Son of God started. But the Bible teaches us that in the beginning, there was the Son of God. In the beginning was Yeshua, Joshua, or Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. Now, to us, this is a little odd that he calls a person the Word. Okay, it's gonna, he's going to be more personified as we go through the chapter. Why, why would he call a person the Word? Now, words are important. We convey thoughts. We communicate. We reveal uh, what's going on. And so John uses the word, word, or logos here, uh, which was familiar to Greeks and to Hebrews. Now, logos was the rational principle of the entire universe. Logos was the cohesive factor that held the universe together. The word was the glue, okay? Got to get your minds to understand that. The, the word was the glue. And to the Jew, to hear the word, word, meant the action of God. You know, they read in Psalms about by the word of his mouth, he spoke and the heavens were made. And they thought, word, action, boom, there you go. Word, it's, it's God. It's, it's God manifesting himself. In fact, in the Greek, the word logos speaks of the divine expression that is the Christ or the Messiah. So in the beginning was the divine expression, was the Christ, was the Messiah. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, the starry host by the breath of his mouth. So what orthodox biblical Christianity is teaching us through this first verse of John is that the Son of God was lying in a manger. And that little baby that was lying in a manger was none other than the Son of God incarnate. Not the Father incarnate, not the Holy Spirit incarnate, but the Son of God incarnate. That little child in the manger was none other than the Lord of all eternity. And our sentimentalizing of it kind of robs us of that. I love one of the little projects that the children's ministry class did this year because they took toilet paper rolls and they made little, you know, Joseph's and Mary's out of these toilet paper rolls and they dressed them up really cute, right? And then in the manger was a toilet paper roll, kind of chopped up, looked like a manger, was a little baby and that little baby was a peanut, okay? A little peanut with a smiley face drawn on him and I love that, right? It's cute. And then Russell, you know, hey, Russell, what's baby Jesus? He's a nut, you know, he's a peanut, you know, and just having fun with that. And yet we can just, just kind of get away from, yeah, more than a nut, right? The son of God in the flesh, the Lord of all eternity. You know, we read this Christmas story and we hear of the wise men and you may not know it, but they traveled like two years on camel to get from where they were from to where they were going two years by following a star, and, and perhaps the wise men knew it, perhaps they didn't, but the little baby that they were going to worship was the one that created that star they were following, and was the one that actually created the earth that they were traveling on, and all of the other heavens you know, that they were gazing upon night after night for two years. God created the stars that led these guys. And so we see, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. 
We have personality here, that there was this person that was with God the Father. You know, Colossians, uh, oh, excuse me, I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself here. Um, Thomas Whitelaw said that the theme of this evangelist discourse was not mythological or metaphysical abstraction or even a poetical personification, but we're speaking of a veritable person here who was with God in the beginning. In John chapter, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, written by the same John, it opens up very similar. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life, goes on to say, the life was manifested and we've seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So John says in another letter, I'm going to tell you about the word and that he was a person and I saw him and I touched him and I talked to him and I went camping with him and I ate fish with him and I went on boat rides with him and he's the guy that was from the very beginning. He was with God and it shows us the community within the Trinity, that within the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, they had perfect community from the very beginning. Like John chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus prays and he says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world even was. They had this fellowship. They had this witness before the world was even created. But then we see in John chapter 1 that the word was God. The word was God. We see that this word, this person, was deity. He who became flesh always was, and in his always wasness, he always was God. Jesus, before the manger, was God. He was with God. He was there in the beginning. As verse 2 says, he was in the beginning with God. Spurgeon says, I know not how the deity of Christ can be more plainly declared than in his eternal duration. He is from the beginning. In his glory, he was with God. And in his nature, he was God. Verse 3 says, all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Talk about a totalitarian statement. He made everything and nothing was made that he didn't make. That means he made it all, right? He's the creator of all things. Colossians chapter 1, verse 5, or 15 through 17. says he is the image of the invisible God, or he's the icon, the likeness of the invisible God, the firstborn or first ranked over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things consist or are set and held together. So Jesus is the image, the likeness, the icon of God. You want to see God? You look at Jesus. Have you guys ever had those toys? Maybe you got them at Christmas where it's a whole bunch of pins in a box. And you put your hand against it and it pushes the pins out where your hands are and it shows the exact likeness of your hand or you do your face, you know, and your face is there. You want the the icon or the image of God, you just press that box up against Jesus. 
you know, and, and you're seeing God. As Spurgeon said, he that hung upon the cross was the maker of all worlds. He that came as an infant for our sake was the infinite. How low he stooped, how high he must have been that he could have stooped so low. So he's this creator of the earth. He's the likeness of God. He was so high. And yet when he became a little baby, he stooped so low. Verse 4, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. And so this word is life and light. Illumination. And this illumination came into a dark place. And it's there that we have a description of who we are apart from Jesus. You want to know what you are apart from Jesus being your Savior, being your Lord, being your all? Listen to me. You are dark. You are dark. Now, you might have the biggest, brightest smile of anybody in Crook County. I mean, you have brushed those pearly whites every day of your life six times, right? Or you might have the, the brightest house on your block right now. I mean, you are the Griswold family Christmas example in Prineville. I mean, you have stolen the power grid uh, from Prineville. And you've got this brightness all around you. And yet, if you are apart from Christ today, you are not light, but rather you are darkness. You are evil, actually. As well as me, apart from Christ, I am a wicked, wicked person. Romans chapter 1 tells us that, that we are unthankful, we are undiscerning, we are unforgiving, we are unmerciful, we are immoral, we are malicious, we have lusts of our flesh, lusts of our eyes, we have pride of life, we are in utter darkness and utterly depraved in more ways than one. Every single person, Romans chapter 3 tells us, is guilty of sin and is dark at their core. And when this light came into this darkness in an effort to illuminate it, the darkness did not understand it. And my prayer for you today, as you come to this place and you hear this message, is that as the light is here, you would understand him. You would comprehend him. We're going to jump ahead quite a few verses to verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Man didn't become God, but God became man, became flesh. And as John Calvin says, in so doing, God accommodated us. Begg says, God has graciously taken the initiative in sending his son. God is the one who's been active in the plan of redemption. God is the one who has taken the initiative. He became flesh. That flesh speaks of the fragileness of life. You know, when you get out those sweet rollerblades that you're going to get for Christmas and you're going to go cruising down the street and you're going to biff it and hit your chin and hit your hands and your palms on the street. Your, your flesh is going to peel back and be exposed and bleed. 
And Jesus, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, set aside the privileges of deity and and the comfort and the glory of the throne, and he became flesh. He became something that could tear and that could break and could be broken. And so he became flesh. How in the world does that happen? Does anybody comprehend that, that, that God can become a man and have flesh and bones like we? Luke tells us how it happened in chapter 1, verse 35. It says, And the angel said to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is born to you shall be called the Son of God. So how did this conception take place? Well, it's called the Immaculate Conception, where the Holy Spirit, in a very holy and pure way, just overshadowed Mary, and she became with child. It's very pure, it's very holy. An ancient historian named Irenaeus quotes Polycarp, who was the uh, the bishop of Ephesus and a disciple of John, the revelator that we're reading today. And he tells this story, Polycarp does, of John the Revelator, or John the Apostle, being in a bathhouse in Ephesus, kind of in a sauna. And as he's in this sauna, he's writing letters. And all of a sudden, John the Apostle runs out of the bathhouse, screaming that people need to get out of the bathhouse. The ceiling is going to tumble down because a heathen named Caranthus is in there, and it's going to fall down and crush this guy. Now, this heathen, his message that he spoke was that Jesus came from a natural union between Joseph and Mary, a sexual union. And to John, that was utter blasphemy. And he says, don't be under the same roof as someone that teaches that message because the roof will cave in and crush you. When we speak of this becoming flesh, one of the terms that's used is the hypostatic union. Kind of a good band name if you're ever looking for one hypostatic union. And it comes from the Chalcedonian Cree of 1452. It was the term that was used to describe how God the Son, Jesus Christ, took on flesh and human nature and yet remained fully God at the same time. Being fully God and fully man, it's the mystery of the hypostatic union. He became flesh or carne. The incarnation literally means in the flesh. Now, in this becoming flesh, Jesus fulfilled a whole bunch of prophecies concerning the Messiah. Genesis chapter 3.15 prophesied that the Messiah would be born of a woman, which is a big deal because normally it would say you would be born from this or this man. But the fact that it said you're born of, you'll, you'll be born of a woman shows that this person will not have an earthly father in the flesh. So Jesus fulfilled that by being born of a woman. 700 years before he was born, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be born of a virgin and that he would be born in Bethlehem, chapter, uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. That through you, Bethlehem, a ruler will come into Israel who will shepherd my people Israel. Then in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, we see the time frame that the Messiah was going to come, that God was going to come in the flesh, that he would come before the destruction of the temple, as you see that the Messiah will suddenly come into his temple. And so the Messiah had to come before 70 AD. 
And so if this Messiah isn't Jesus, then who is it? A a well-respected, perhaps the most famous Jewish author in the world right now, leading Jewish scholar, widely respected, wrote a book called The Incarnation of Christ. This man's name was Jacob Neusner. And here's what he has to say. He's not a Christian. He's not a Messianic Jew. He's a Jew who's studied the Old Testament scriptures. And he says this, The Old Testament does speak of God coming in the flesh as a human being in human history. And then somebody asked him, well, what about the implications of this? And he admits this does crack the door open for belief in Jesus as the one that everybody was waiting for. And he also says many rabbis agree it did teach, the Bible teaches, that God was coming in human history as a man. And so Jesus, fulfilling prophecies, coming in the flesh, the sign of his coming, Luke chapter 2 verse 12 tells us that the angels speak to the shepherds. It says the sign is that you will find a babe wrapped in squaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Now, the angels don't say go and look for the poshest place in Israel, you know, the Hotel Daniel there in uh, Jerusalem. Five stars, awesome Wonderful buffet in the morning, continental breakfast, you know. Uh, No, go and look in a stable, and really worse than a stable. I don't know if many of you have been around cattle or ranches in the wintertime, but it's a bit sloppy, if you know what I mean. Um, I've fallen down many a times in the stable muck of a December day. Uh, But, you know, so Jesus is in the midst of this stable, and he's lying in a trough. And you just hear the shepherds. He's lying in a what? A trough. Okay. This is odd, you know. But go there. Go and find the trough. That'll be the sign that this is the Messiah. Jesus had his beginnings in humiliation. In his first coming, it was marked by the two bookends of humiliation. A birth in a manger in Bethlehem and a death on a Roman instrument of execution, the most humiliating and excruciating form in the world, the Roman cross. The bookends of Jesus' life were that of humiliation. In the book Knowing God, J.I. Packer says, the incarnation meant the laying aside of glory, a voluntary restraint of power, an acceptance of hardship, isolation, mistreatment, malice, and misunderstanding. Finally, a death, that meant such agony that his mind nearly broke under the prospect of it. And what would take place under the most obscure and impoverished of circumstances was going to change the world forever. God's coming in weakness, God's coming in humiliation demonstrates three things to us. First of all, God's coming in weakness demonstrates the lengths to which God must go to redeem the world of their sin. If if we are going to be redeemed, an enormous sacrifice must be made by the most pure beings in all of the universe, heaven or earth. And that sacrifice was God incarnate. Not only on the cross, but even him coming to the world as a man. The lengths to which he must go to redeem the world. How dark are we, you ask? Just how dark is my darkness? 
It's dark enough for God to give up the rights and privileges of his throne and to come in flesh. Secondly, his humiliation shows us the lengths at which he was willing to go to redeem us. You tell me what I got to do to save, and I'm going to do it. I'm willing to do it. And finally, his humiliation shows us the lengths at which he did go to redeem us. This is a historical event that happened. He did it. He did the work. He accomplished the work so that you could be redeemed and bought from your sins, bought with the precious blood that that flesh shed. He dwelt among us, John chapter 1 tells us, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived with us. He shared with us in our situations, which is a beautiful thing. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. <coughs> Excuse me. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So why did God become flesh and dwell among us? Well, it's not a whole lot of great stuff that he had in store for him, is it? He was made a little of the, lower than the angels. For what? For the suffering of death. Well, he got a lot out of it, didn't he? Why? That he might, by the grace of God, taste death for everyone. Then, in verse 16... For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. And so not only did he come that he might die for us, but he also became a man that he could relate to us. And that when he goes on our behalf as our high priest, he can be sympathetic because he can say, you know what? I've been where these people have been and they need mercy and they need grace. As Hebrews 4.15 says, seeing now we have this great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's the word aid that is used. Now that he's become a man, he is a ready aid in our time of need, like a medic coming to the wounded on the battlefield. He suffered like we've suffered, and he's a willing help in time of need. My friend, uh, who used to be the secretary in Corvallis with me for a while, she wrote this song. It's just so beautiful and simple. But it says, born to die that I might live. You took upon you all my sin and paid a debt you didn't owe. And now you call me your own. So I bow to you, my king. Nothing in my hands I bring, but my life a sacrifice Use it now to glorify your name above all names. He has come into time. He's come into our human sinful dilemma. And he did for us what we can never do for ourselves. He paid the debt 
that, we, uh, that he didn't owe. Very quickly, let's turn back to verse 10 in John chapter 1. It says that this word, this word that became flesh, he was in the world. And the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And so first of all, when he came into the world, he was unrecognized by his creation. Now, Romans chapter 1 tells us that every single person that's ever been created has in their heart the knowledge that there's a creator. They have an internal testimony of their conscience that they've been created, and they have the external testimony of the beautiful creation that testifies to to a creator. But they took the worship that belonged to the creator, and they exchanged it and began to worship the created thing. Whether it's a person, a place, or a thing, we worshiped it rather than the creator who's eternally blessed. And because of that, the wrath of God abides on us for our idolatry. And Romans chapter 1 tells us we are without excuse. And so, in him coming to the world, and the world not knowing him, his own creation not knowing him, there's no excuse for that. Verse 11 then tells us that he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. So secondly, he was unwelcomed by his people. We're talking the Jews as well as his own home. His brothers and his sisters didn't believe that he was the Messiah. And verse 12 tells us, but that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So thirdly, because of his initiation, some would receive him. Not because of their own will, not because of their own, you know, fleshly actions, but because of his initiative. All who received him became what they couldn't be by nature. That is God's children. And so we see here that in our darkness, a precious light has come. The darkness didn't comprehend it. And yet there are some that would see the light and see the deep love of God. And that love would provoke them to repentance. And that love and that light would move them to receive. To receive. You know, many of you have not received, and yet the world's lied to you. They're telling you, you know what? We're all children of God, right? It's just common. It's almost American that everybody's a child of God. No, Ephesians tells us that we are children of wrath by nature. Because of our sin, the wrath of God abides on us. Apart from Christ, you are not a child of God. But... If you would receive, if you would accept this gift of grace that God has done all the work, God has done all the initiative to bring to you, you will be saved. John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus tells Nicodemus, Assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Have you been born again? 
Have you received the work that the incarnation brought? That Jesus would come and be born for the purpose of dying upon the Roman cross and that his blood would provide the atonement for your sin. His blood would pay the ransom price to release you from the slavery of sin and death and the bondage of corruption. And you would be given the right to be a son and a daughter of God. If you never have, I plead with you and I urge you on behalf of God, receive. Receive the gift. Just today, you're going to be given gifts. You don't deserve the gift. You didn't do anything to get that gift. People will just be bringing it to you, and all you've got to do is hold out your hands and receive it. And same is, is given to you right now in this place. The gift of salvation that's been earned and won by the sweat and blood and toil of Jesus. I urge you, I plead with you, be reconciled to God this day. And all that has to happen is just in your heart, the most simple response that you would be moved today to say, you know what? I believe. I believe and I rest in what you've done, God. I believe that you are my savior, which implies that you need to be saved from something. I believe you're my savior, Jesus, who's come to save me from my sins. And I believe that you're my Lord. You're my master. And I have no right to live the life that I want to live anymore, but only to live the life that you want me to live. I believe that you're my king. Would you respond to him today? If you do, you'll be given the right to be the child of God with all of the blessings and privileges that come with that. Kendra and band, you can come on up. C.T. Studd, his name was very fitting. He was a, I believe he was a uh, polo player in Chicago, the turn of the century, and uh, felt the call with many of his uh, schoolmates to become a missionary. And quit school and went and became a missionary. And he said this, If Jesus Christ really is God and died for me, then no sacrifice that I could ever make for him could ever be too great. If Jesus really became flesh and lived a life within his creation for 33 years, Suffering among his creation, being tempted among his creation, being betrayed by his creation and his best friend, being brutally tortured and murdered on the cross so that you could be saved of your sins. No sacrifice that you could ever make for him would be great enough. Give him your heart. Give him your heart.
You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.